Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week 33, Daniel chapters 11 and 12. If it can be fairly said that the last few months of our study of Daniel has been like trying to drink from a fire hose, then the concluding verses of this book are like standing under Niagara Falls. I want you to keep your Bibles handy. We're going to look at a lot of scripture today. And I need for you to follow along in your Bibles when we read these passages and I mean everybody so as a consequence I'm not going to take the time to review last week's lesson rather I'm going to proceed based on the assumption you've heard it and you have a reasonable grasp of it and since context is always key in correctly interpreting the Bible I don't care what book you study then the best way to proceed is for us to read from Daniel 11.36 all the way through the end of the book. And as we've discussed before, while in one sense the chapter divisions play somewhat arbitrarily in our Bibles centuries after it was closed up, are helpful to our studying and our communicating about Scripture. On the other hand, These chapter divisions can mislead. Sometimes it feels as though the close of one chapter and the beginning of the next one is meant to indicate a change in times. Or maybe a different scene altogether. Or the subject has changed. And as often as not, that's not the case. Our reading today is going to emphasize that for you. So open your Bibles, everybody, to Daniel 11. Verse 36, which is on page 1115, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Follow along with me. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt himself and consider himself greater than any god. He will utter monstrous blasphemies against the God of gods. He will prosper only until the period of wrath is over for what has been determined must take place. He will show no respect for the gods his ancestors worshipped or for the god women worship. He won't show respect for any god because he will consider himself greater than all of them. But instead he will honor the God of strongholds. With gold, silver, precious stones, and other costly things, he'll honor a God unknown to his ancestors. He will deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. He will confer honor on those he acknowledges, causing them to rule over many and distributing land as a reward. And when the time for the end comes, the king of the south will push at him, while the king of the north will attack him like a whirlwind with chariots and cavalry and a large navy. He will invade countries, overrun them and move on. He will also enter the land of glory and many countries will come to grief, but these will be saved from his power, Edom, Moab, and the people of Ammon. He will reach out his hand to seize other countries too. The land of Egypt will not escape. He will control the treasures of gold and silver as well as everything else in Egypt of value. 
put and Ethiopia will be subject to to him. However, news from the east and the north will frighten him so that he moves out in a great fury to ruin and completely do away with many. Then finally, when he pitches the tents of his palace between the seas and the mountain of the holy glory, he will come to his end. No one to help him. And when that time comes, Michael, the great prince who champions your people will stand up and there will be a time of distress unparalleled between the time they became a nation and that moment. At that time your people will be delivered. Everyone whose name is found written in the book. Many of those sleeping in the dust of the earth will awaken, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting shame and aberrance. But those who can discern will shine like the brightness of heaven's dome and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, keep these words secret. Seal up the book until the time of the end. Many will rush here and there as knowledge increases. Then I, Daniel, looked and I saw in front of me two others, one on this bank of the river and the other on its other bank. And one of them asked the man dressed in linen who was above the water of the river, How long will these wonders last? And the man dressed in linen who was above the water of the river raised his right and left hands towards heaven and he swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times and a half. And then it will be when the power of the holy people is no longer being shattered that all these things will end. I heard this, but I couldn't understand what it meant. So I asked, Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? Go your way, Daniel. For these words are to remain secret and sealed until the end Many will purify, cleanse, and refine themselves, but the wicked will keep on acting wickedly. None of the wicked will understand, but those with discernment will understand. From the time the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed will be anyone who waits and arrives at 1,335 days. But you, go your way until the end comes. Then you will rest and rise for your reward at the end of days. Bible prophecy teachers of the three main categories of end times denominational theology called amillennial, postmillennial, and premillennial and variations of those don't even agree within their own ranks whether verses 36 through 39 are speaking of Antiochus Epiphanes or of the future Antichrist. However, they do agree that beginning with verse 40 the subject is the end times that does not involve epiphanies. Rather, it is directly dealing with the Antichrist. Now, having said that, none of what I've just told you is the view of most Bible academics and commentators today. So permit me to preach to you for a moment. 
The bulk of modern Bible academics believe that chapters 10, 11, and 12 are entirely about Antiochus Epiphanes. Because they say that's as far as the book of Daniel is pretending to look ahead. And once again, this is because these particular Bible experts say that Daniel is essentially a pious fraud. It was written after all the events spoken about here happened, but the author deceptively wrote about them as though they were predictions of the future, predictions that he got from God. And since predictive prophecy that would point to an antichrist is impossible in their eyes, even if there were to be such a thing as an antichrist, which they also say is a religious fantasy, then we circle right back to the conclusion that Daniel is bogus. And that this book is all about looking back in what was actually recent history for that author at the antics of the maniacal Antiochus Epiphanes. But here's where it gets even more interesting. Because starting with verse 36, these same Bible academics acknowledge that most of the things described here that they say are all about Antiochus Epiphanes did not happen in this era. In his era. Didn't happen. Their conclusion about how this can be? Ah, the writer of Daniel wasn't only a liar, he was a sloppy and inaccurate historian, so he just got lots of things wrong. So as I pointed out before, when you are a Bible scholar and you begin with the position, your foundational position is there is no such thing as the supernatural or the divine or miracles or predictive prophecy all scripture study and commentary on it has to be twisted and channeled to provide some excuse no matter how flimsy for why things actually played out in history exactly as the prophecy said it would but there must also then be some means to discredit things that are yet future so the believers stop, stop looking for them to happen. And as Yeshua warned in a passage that we used in last week's lesson in 1 John 4, Dear friends, don't trust every spirit. On the contrary, test the spirits to see whether they're from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And then it concludes with in verse 4, You, children, are from God. You've overcome the false prophets because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I tell you forthrightly, these particular modern Bible academics who subscribe to this particular distorted view of Daniel and how it then taints all the rest of the Bible may be the nicest, smartest, warmest people on earth. But they are the epitome of the biblical definition of false 
prophets, even if for some it's not intentional. So fellow believers, we each have a profound, highly spiritual, and consequential personal decision to make. You can't exempt yourself. If we decide that those particular Bible, Bible academics are right, then the book of Daniel that forms the foundation for our end times prophecy is about as realistic and viable as a Marvel comic book. And since Christ quoted Daniel often, as is recorded in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and since the book of Revelation uses Daniel as its starting point and as its basis, then the Gospels and the book of Revelation are as bogus as is Daniel. And there can also be no other conclusion than Yeshua himself was deceived to believe Daniel. Or he had joined the conspiracy and he intended to deceive his followers. And that, brothers and sisters, is precisely what academics who subscribe to this viewpoint and run a substantial segment of our seminaries and Bible colleges believe and they teach those students. It's rather ironic, isn't it? That so many of our modern Christian educational institutions and their leaders who are preparing the next generation of pastors and Christian leaders are teaching their students to not accept the Bible as God's Word. But rather to see the Bible as only a flawed book of dubious history, even if it does also contain good and useful general principles penned by wise humans in ancient times. The result is that the Bible has diminished in importance, relevance, and focus in our churches and in our synagogues. So as we enter the home stretch of our Daniel study, I'm going to reiterate with fullest confidence and conviction, born of evidence, born of fact, that Daniel has proven itself to be 100% accurate in past history. So we can count on what has yet been fulfilled to come about with 100% accuracy as prophesied. Therefore, as important as it is for us to glean all that we can about what is ahead of us from the book of Daniel, we have to be humble in our speculations and very careful not to add words and meaning where they simply don't exist just because it satisfies our need for closure and for tidiness. And I'm sorry to tell you, the book of Daniel gives us almost as many loose ends today as it did for Daniel, who went from terrorized to ill to morose as he heard and then he worried about what these divine prophecies meant. Now the good news for us is that what was predicted at least up to verse 35 of chapter 11 did come about. It was recorded 
in biblical and in non-biblical documents, so we don't have to wonder. It's the remainder of Daniel that provides us with heartburn and a lot of skepticism. Dr. Robert Culver, in his book Daniel in the Latter Days, says this, The predictions of Daniel chapter 11 with now past history breaks down at the end of verse 35. I mean to say that if verses 36 to 45 were intended to refer to Antiochus, the last great Seleucid king, then the author appears to be guilty of introducing error into the scriptures. There's nothing known in history which corresponds to the prediction of Daniel 11:36 to 45. Evidence of this is the utter confusion in the various biblical commentaries of those who insist that Antiochus is the chief figure right down to the end of the chapter. Now, as much as I admire Dr. Culver, he has in this part of his statement overgeneralized when he said there is nothing known in history which corresponds to the prediction of Daniel 11.36-45. In fact, there is abundant documentation of Epiphany's high opinion of himself and his fondness to see himself as on par with the gods, but indeed it's only in relatively small measure when compared to the dramatic events that were predicted. My own opinion is that events depicted in verses 36 through 39 should be placed in the eras of both the first latter days and the second latter days. The king exalting himself above the gods, honoring certain new gods that his fathers didn't worship, and conferring honor on those potentates who would do his bidding, that happened to a degree with Antiochus Epiphanes, but it's going to happen again and in their most vile and violent fullness with the Antichrist. So let's back up for a minute. Look at verse 36. Notice that verse 36 says, the king will do as he pleases. What king? Or better, which king? See, up to now, the passages have been careful to identify the king and link him with either the north or the south. But here he is just left dangling. Now we can probably reasonably assume that in ancient times this unnamed king was the king of the north because it was the northern king who attacked Israel called the Holy Covenant or the Land of the Glory. Yet it is quite ambiguous the way it's stated here. That is why we have some scholars say that this king can only be referring to the king of the north, Epiphanes, while others equally firmly insist it can only be referring to the future Antichrist. But if we use our principle that there are two latter days eras being spoken of in these passages, suddenly we find that the ambiguity lifts and that the character and the nature of Antiochus Epiphanes will of course result in similar decisions and actions by the future Antichrist. Now verse 40 says that when the time of the end comes, the king of the south, king of Egypt, 
will push at him, while the king of the north will attack him like a whirlwind. In case it hasn't struck you yet, the him being spoken of here is obviously a third party. That is, he's neither the king of the north or the king of the south. Somebody else. In other words, all the battles and the wars and the intrigue that we've been studying up to now has been between the king of the north and the king of the south. Two characters. But now, the king of the north and the king of the south together attacks somebody else who's labeled as him or the king. When will this joint attack happen? It says it will be when the time of the end comes. But does the time of the end mean the time of the end of the world? As we commonly think of the end times. Here we have another ambiguity that different scholars arrive at different conclusions. The term the end can reasonably be applied to a terminating point in both of the latter days eras. Because it seems to be referring to the end of all the wrath and all the tribulation that's being caused by this particular Gentile world leader who was reigning at that time. Epiphanes in the first latter days, the Antichrist in the second latter days. And yet, it doesn't fit perfectly. Because Epiphanes came a long time, 170 years before the person who is the focal point and the purpose of each of the latter days, Jesus Christ, arrived. And if we fast forward to the last verse of chapter 12, it says, But go your way until the end comes. Then you will rest and arise for your reward at the end of the days. So there's a good case to be made that the term the end is referring to the climax of each of the two latter days eras, but the term the end of days is referring to literally the end of the world as we know it. The period that flows from the results of the second latter days upon Messiah's return and this is the entry point then into the millennial kingdom. Now even so in verse 40 it is self-evident that we can no longer be talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. It can only be the Antichrist because both the king of the north and the king of the south come against this person and Antiochus is king of the north. can't come against himself. Thus, when the time for the end comes, it is a future event that takes place sometime after Antiochus Epiphanes, but it's also future to us. Now, assuming that we are currently living at some stage of the second latter days, then we can then then, then I guess the question is, can we continue? with the identification of the king of the south as meaning Egypt. And the king of the north as referring roughly to Syria or some new form of a greater Syria that hasn't taken shape yet. 
Now, I maintain that without other evidence and without some earth-shaking geopolitical events that, that alters the world leadership landscape, could happen. There's no good reason to assume otherwise. In the end times, Egypt and some form of Syria or a nation that's replaced it will together attack the forces of the Antichrist. Now it's in vogue, in the 21st century anyway, to say that the king of the north is to be identified as Russia. I can't say that's impossible. But you know, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit with the God pattern that places all of these battles of both the first latter days and the second latter days in the Middle East and they always involve Middle Eastern kings who are the ones who are in charge. So we'll have to just watch and wait and see what happens. Verse 40 continues that this king, the one that's neither of the north or the south, that seems to be the Antichrist, is going to invade many sovereign nations. But for some reason, he will either not attack, or more likely, something will thwart his attack, we're told, upon Edom, Moab, and Ammon. Now, these three ancient nations collectively form the modern Hashemite kingdom of Jordan in our day. So if we go by names we use today, the prophecy is that Jordan is going to somehow avoid the grip of the Antichrist. And this makes sense. Because we're told in the New Testament that in the end, when the Antichrist's fury against Israel is at its peak level, the Jews will run to hide themselves in a particularly suitable place in the desert. Many scholars think that this desert place is Petra, which is in Jordan. Now this passage also makes it clear that the Antichrist will have success in overcoming Egypt, the king of the south, and then nearby Ethiopia and Put will also fall to him. Egypt we know. Ethiopia we also know as that modern northern African nation that has a substantial Christian and Jewish population. Ethiopia is where a goodly portion of the tribe of Dan wound up. And today these people are often mislabeled as the black Jews of Ethiopia. Thousands of whom. Thousands who have been resettled in Israel. In fact, they are not Jews. Folks from the tribe of Judah. They are of Dan. One of the ten lost tribes. The other nation they will overrun, that, uh, that will be overrun by the Antichrist is Put, which today is Libya. But, says verse 44, some kind of bad news is going to cause this king to withdraw his forces from northern Africa, countries that he's already subdued. 
this need to withdraw is going to infuriate him. And so he is going to take out his anger, we're told, upon many and do away with them. This can only mean killing massive amounts of people who have either opposed him or not completely committed to his cause. Again, we seem to be talking about the end times epiphanies on steroids that we call the Antichrist. Well, verse 45 ends chapter 11. But in reality, it doesn't end the thought. It doesn't even represent a pause in the action. It flows directly into chapter 12, verse 1. And the thought is quite a provocative one. It says that this mysterious unidentified king, probably the Antichrist, will pitch his, the tents of his palace in between the seas and the mountain of the holy glory. And it is there that he shall be killed and disposed of, abandoned with no one to rescue him. Yeah, I know, I'm aware that there is further information in the book of Revelation that adds to our knowledge of the Antichrist. Not as much as you think, by the way. But I remind you that we're not doing a prophecy study. We're doing a study of the book of Daniel. So I'm not going to be incorporating that other information. Well, anyway, the mountain of the holy glory has to be referring to Jerusalem in in general. However, if it is meaning a very specific, particular mountain, it will be one of three identifiable hills that are in intimate proximity, a few hundred yards from one another. It will either be Mount Zion, Mount Moriah, or the Mount of Olives. But also notice the word seas. Usually this is said to refer to the Mediterranean Sea. That might be acceptable, except that the word is seas, plural, not sea, singular. In Hebrew, the word for sea is yom. But here the form is yamim. That's the plural form. So what is the other sea? Fact is, it could even mean more than two. Now, while I might not get very many Bible scholars to agree with me, I think this has to be referring to either or both the Sea of Galilee or the Dead Sea. However, in Bible times, the Sea of Galilee was not referred to as a sea, but rather as a lake, which is what it is. The term sea then as now, is usually reserved when talking about a body of salt water. While a lake is reserved for referring to a body of fresh water. That disqualifies the Sea of Galilee as a candidate, or more more correctly, as it has been known since time immemorial, the Canaret. Thus I think that the two seas that are meant here are the Dead Sea, and the Mediterranean Sea. And as pertains to the Holy Land, what is between the Mediterranean Sea to the west and the Dead Sea to the east? The hills of Jerusalem. The location of the mountain of the Holy Glory, just as we're told. 
I think what this is describing is the Antichrist at some point setting up his residence in Jerusalem. Now let's take some of the things we've explored earlier in Daniel, match them up to our new information. I want you to go to Daniel chapter 8 where we're going to look at the prophecy again of the little horn. This will necessarily involve revisiting some information we've covered before, but I think it might begin to put some pieces together for you. Before we read part of Daniel 8, let me point out that in Daniel 8, that in Daniel rather, there are two prophecies of little horns appearing. Most modern scholars say it is just two stories about the same horn. But once again, our poor, ignorant, lying writer of Daniel was just too dumb to make a matchup very well. So that is why there are differences in what these two little horns do and when they do it. Well, I'm going to show you how the little horn of chapter 8 fits in the first latter days. And the little horn of chapter 7 fits in the second latter days. And that was what was always intended. So open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8. We're going to read verses 5 through 24. 5 through 24. I was beginning to understand when a male goat from the west passing over the whole earth without touching the ground, the goat had a prominent horn between its eyes and it approached the ram with the two horns which I had seen standing in front of the river and it charged it with a savage force. I watched as it advanced on the ram, filled with rage against it, struck the ram, breaking its horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. It threw the ram to the ground and trampled it down, and there was no one that could rescue it from the goat's power. The male goat then became extremely strong, but when it was strong, the big horn was broken, and in its place arose what appeared to be four horns in the direction of the four winds of heaven. Now out of one of them came a little horn which grew extremely big in the directions of the south and the east and in the direction of the glory. It grew so great that it reached the army of heaven. <clears throat> it hurled some of the army and the stars to the ground and trampled on them. Yes, it even considered itself as great as the prince of the army. The regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of a sanctuary was thrown down. Through sin... The army was put in its power, along with the regular burnt offering. It flung truth on the ground as it acted, and it prospered. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the speaker, How long will the events of this vision last? This vision concerning the regular offering and the transgression, which is so appalling, that allows the sanctuary and the army to be trampled underfoot. And the first one said to me, 2,300 evenings and mornings, after which the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. After I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was trying to understand it, suddenly there stood in front of me someone who appeared to be a man. I heard a human voice calling from between the banks of the Ulai, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. And he came up to where I was standing and his approach so terrified me that I fell on my face. But he said to me, human being, understand that the vision refers to the time of the end. And as he was speaking with me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face towards the ground, but he touched me and he set me on my feet and I said, and, and he said, I'm going to explain to you what will happen at the end of the period of fury 
because the vision has to do with the time of the end. You saw a ram with two horns, which are the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy male goat is the king of Greece, and the prominent horn between its eyes is the first king. As for the horn that broke and the four which rose up in its place, four kingdoms will arise out of this nation, but not with the power that the first king had. And in the latter part of their reign, when the evildoers have become as evil as possible, there will arise an arrogant king, skilled in intrigue. His power will be great, but not with the power the first king had. He will be amazingly destructive. He will succeed in whatever he does, and he will destroy the mighty and the holy ones." We don't have to speculate, we don't have to guess. After using the symbolism of the shaggy male goat with the big horn that's broken off and replaced with four smaller horns, then out of the four horns comes the little horn. Daniel tells us who this is. The little horn is a king who will come out of the Greek, or the Yavan, Javan Empire. And out of what empire do most modern prophecy teachers say the Antichrist will come? Rome. Not that I necessarily agree with that, but... Even more, this tells us exactly that Media Persia will be conquered by a great king from Greece, then he'll die, then his kingdom will be divided into four, and then one of the four kings will gain power by intrigue and he will be the strongest but not nearly as strong as the original king. That was Alexander the Great. And there is no doubt at all that this historic path happened exactly as prophesied with historically identifiable people and names and nations and that this little horn that arose from the four and created such havoc was none other than Antiochus Epiphanes, not the Antichrist. Thus the prophecy of Daniel chapter 8 in regards to the little horn takes place in the first latter days era. It's past history for us. Now let's go to Daniel chapter 7. So back up a little bit and we're going to read the whole chapter. Daniel chapter 7. Page 1109 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babel, Daniel had a dream and visions in his head. And as he was lying on his bed, he wrote the dream down, and this is his account. I had a vision at night. I saw there before me the four winds of the sky breaking out over the great sea, and four huge animals came up out of the sea, each different from the others. The first was like a lion, but it had eagle's wings. And as I watched, its wings were plucked off. It was lifted off the earth, made to stand on two feet like a man. A human heart was given to it. Then there was another animal, a second one like a bear. It raised itself up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up, gorge yourself with flesh. After this I looked and there was another one like a leopard with four bird's wings on its sides. The animal also had four heads. It was given power to rule. After this I looked in the night visions and there before me was a fourth animal, dreadful, horrible, extremely strong, with great iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and stamped its feet on what was left. It was different from all the animals that had gone before it. And it had ten horns. Now while I was considering the horns, another horn sprang up among them, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. 
And in this horn were eyes like human eyes, a mouth speaking arrogantly. And as I watched, thrones were set in place. The Ancient One took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair on his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames with wheels of burning fire. A stream of fire flowed from his presence. Thousands, thousands ministered to him. Millions, millions stood before him. Then the court was convened and the books were opened. I kept watching. Then because of the arrogant words which the horn was speaking, I watched as the animal was killed. Its body was destroyed. It was given over to be burned up completely. Now as for the other animals, their rulership was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a time and a season. Now I kept watching the night visions when I saw, coming with the clouds of heaven, someone like a son of man. He approached the Ancient One and was led into His presence. To Him was given rulership, glory, and a kingdom so that all peoples and nations and languages should serve Him. His rulership is an eternal rulership. It will not pass away. His kingdom is one. It will never be destroyed. Now as for me, Daniel, my spirit deep within me was troubled. The visions in my head frightened me. So I approached one of those standing by and asked him what all of this really meant. He said that he'd make me understand how to interpret these things. These four huge animals are four kingdoms that will arise on earth, but the holy ones of the Most High will receive the kingdom, possess the kingdom forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know what that fourth beast meant, the one that was different from all the others, so, so terrifying with iron teeth and bronze nails which devoured and crushed and stamped his feet on what was left, and what the ten horns on its head meant, and what the other horn which sprang up and before which three fell, the horn that had eyes, a mouth, speaking arrogantly and seemed greater than the others, and I watched. And that horn made war with the holy ones, and he was winning until the Ancient One came. Judgment was given in favor of the Holy Ones of the Most High. The time came for the Holy Ones to take over the kingdom. This is what he said. The fourth animal will be a fourth kingdom on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth and trample it down and crush it. Now as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise and yet another will arise after them. Now he'll be different from the earlier ones and he'll put down three kings. He will speak words against the Most High and try to exhaust the Holy Ones of the Most High. He will attempt to alter the seasons and the law. And the Holy Ones will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. But when the court goes into session, he will be stripped of his rulership which will be consumed and completely destroyed. Then the kingdom and the rulership and the greatness of the kingdoms of the whole heaven will be given to the holy people of the Most High. Their kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will serve and obey them. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts frightened me so much that I turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Now, since the little horn in this scenario springs up from this fourth 
symbolic beast, which represents the fourth Gentile world empire. But the little horn of chapter 8 springs up from the third Gentile world empire, which is Greece. We're told that. We don't have to extrapolate it. We have more concrete proof. These different These two different little horns are for two different eras. They have to be. The little horn of Daniel 7 is in the setting of the Son of Man being seated alongside the Ancient of Days. And together they rule and they judge. Then later the Son of Man comes on clouds. That is, He descends from heaven. And when he descends, he is given rulership that every nation on earth will bow to him. This event certainly didn't happen in Epiphany's day. And it hasn't happened yet. Some denominations claim that this happened with Christ's advent and his crucifixion. But that's simply nonsense. Christ's rule has yet to be established on earth. But in concert with the second appearance of Messiah will be the reign of terror and speaking of blasphemies against God from this particular little horn. This second little horn is the Antichrist who comes in the type and pattern of Antiochus Epiphanes, the first little horn. So there are of course similarities in world conditions and in behavior, in decision making, in attitude towards God and towards God's people and so on and so forth. Now before someone asks, so if Antichrist comes after Epiphanes, then why do we hear of Antichrist as the little horn of chapter 7 before we hear of Epiphanes as the little horn of chapter 8? I mean this seems out of order. In fact, it would be no different than if the day I stood up here and told you that one year from now I was taking a trip to Israel. But three months from now, now I told you that in a couple of weeks I was taking a trip to Alaska. The order I told you in is irrelevant. The bottom line is I'm going to Alaska first and then some months after that I'm going to Israel. There's no, there's no conflict of information. So the bottom line is the little horn of Daniel 7 comes in the second latter days and he is the Antichrist. The little horn of Daniel 8 has already come and gone and it happened in the first latter days and he was King Antiochus Epiphanes, King of the North. Verse 1 of chapter 12 begins, When that time comes... When what time comes? Well, by removing the chapter mark, I mean, look at your Bibles. Just erase that chapter mark and then looking at the previous sentence, which is placed as the last verse of chapter 11, we see that it means at the time the Antichrist is ruling and at the time the Antichrist has established his residence on the hills of Jerusalem. This means he springs into action Mikael, this national guardian angel of Israel, at the moment that God has predetermined it should occur. 
And as a result of Mikael springing into action, Israel will experience trouble and tribulation unlike anything it has ever seen. Two things. First, this is the time that the Hebrews call the time of Jacob's trouble. Now, don't get confused. Jacob is just an alternative name for Israel. It is also what Christians call the tribulation, or some refer to it as the great tribulation. Second, what we must see is that this passage is speaking only about Israel, not about the Gentile nations. This is not referring to the church. On the other hand, since the Antichrist is essentially the ruler of the world, what happens to Israel and in Israel isn't going to be limited only to them. There will be collateral damage planet-wide. But since the entire context of what we're reading goes back to the introduction of this prophecy that is in Daniel 10.14, let's hear it one more time so that we're crystal clear. Because I promise you, when you try to tell others about this, they're going to get angry, they're going to get agitated when you tell them the end times is not about the church. Daniel 10.14 says, So I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people, Daniel, in the Akhrit Hayyamim, the latter days. For there is another vision which will relate to those days. So this is all about Daniel's people, Israel, the Jews, nobody else. Now please, now that I've asked you to keep your Bibles in your hands, put them down. And look up this direction if you would. Because we are in the 11th hour of mankind's history, and because Israel has returned as a nation and Jerusalem is once again in Israel's hands, we can know that the next prophesied event to happen is the rebuilding of the temple. And that occurs very near months, no more than seven years, but probably fewer, before Messiah returns. The temple is going to be rebuilt, however, at the behest of the Antichrist. And it is at this time that the Antichrist will be revealed for who he is. But as bad as things are going to be for the world in general, what is going to happen to Israel? It's nearly unthinkable. I don't know about you. I I still can't wrap my mind around the unmatched tragedy of the Holocaust. I see the pictures, but I can't grasp it so I how can I possibly imagine what things are going to be like for Israel when it will be exponentially worse than the Holocaust let me me put that in more personal terms 
seed of Abraham has vibrant ministries in Israel. Hope for Israel and love Israel. The people who staff those ministries are Jewish. And they have families. The Antichrist is going to destroy those two ministries we have in Israel. In every sense of the word. In the not too distant future. Certain. The staffs of those two ministries who many of us know personally will not survive. Unless the rapture occurs before then and I really don't think that's going to be the case. The people like Baruch and Moran who run those ministries and they and all of their children their wives who are so dear to us are there because they know that what I'm telling you is the truth. They are there in full knowledge of what is just around the corner for them in order to rescue as many people as they can. Not from the coming day of Jacob's trouble where their death is all but certain, but rather to rescue their fellow Jews from eternal death. Moran and Baruch and others of the seed of Abraham ministries understand their destinies. And yet, there they are. We all need to support them as much as we can and then some. And we all need to clothe ourselves in their courage and their selfless attitudes so that we might also rescue those dear to us, not from certain death as to happens to all humans, but from eternal death at God's hand. We'll continue in Daniel next time.